0: The World Reads from Sharjah, live with Alia, Ahmed and Aisha.
1: Hi, welcome to the show. We are back, guys, at the Sharjah International Book Fair at the Sharjah Expo Center, where we're going to be taking you guys through the entirety of the book fair for the next couple of days. I know we're only a handful of days away from the end of it, which is very sad and Honestly, I get upset every single time But you know, this is how the world is Some things, even good things must come to an end
2: That's right, uh, Aisha And uh, we still have a couple more days to go A lot of sessions uh, lined up as well And uh, every day of the book fair There's always something new going on So we look forward to relaying that to you And uh, discussing it throughout the program But I'm really looking forward uh, to an interview That we're going to air later on in the show With Yann Martel A renowned Canadian author Best known for his work Life of Pi, the story of an Indian teenager adrift at sea, uh, and uh, after a shipwreck, he shares his lifeboat with a Bengal tiger, so I've had a pretty interesting conversation with him about novels overall, about the novel as an art form, about his choices that he makes. He's pretty interesting with his fiction. He tends to use a lot of animal characters, so I got to ask him about that as well, so we look forward to playing that interview later on in today's show.
0: And we also have an interview with Anuja Nair, the young poet. It's also it's always so nice to support young talent, so we're looking forward to that. All of that and much
1: more right here in our special, super special coverage of the Sharjah International Book Fair, live from Sharjah Expo Center.
3: Pulse 95. The world reads from
0: Sharjah, live with Alia, Ahmed, and Aisha.
2: Hi everybody, good morning. Welcome back to our live coverage of the Sharjah International Book Fair. And uh, we've got a pretty interesting conversation lined up. I spoke to Jan Martel. He's a Spanish-Canadian author. He's best known for his award-winning and best-selling novel, Life of Pi. This book sold millions of copies around the world. It was also adopted into the 2012 Golden Globe Award-winning film, Life of Pi, as well. He's also known for his other popular novels, including Self published in 1996, and Beatrice and Virgil in 2010. And uh, during this segment, um, in my conversation with Jan Martel, we spoke about his participation at the Sharjah International Book Fair. He had a session about the art of observing and how it informs one's art. So here it is, Jan Martel. Can you talk to us about what you've done so far at the Sharjah Book Fair? I know that uh, during your session, you spoke on the art of observation. Uh, could you elaborate on that? What does it mean to observe?
3: Sure. Well, as I said, this is my first time at the Sarger Book Fair, and unfortunately, it's my first time. This first time is virtual. It would be better to be there in person. It is a massive book fair. Um, I love going to book fairs. So this time I did an interview with Porter Anderson. Um, I forget what the session was called, but it was about my books, and it was a very good one. He asked terrific questions. Uh, here I am in Canada. In fact, during the worst snowstorm we've had in 20 years where I live, Porter was in Florida and you guys are in Sarja, so it's amazing, <laughs> this connections made internationally. Um, so yeah, I talk, one of the things I talked about was the art of observation. I think um, not just art, but certainly art starts with um, observation. And specifically I think a steady gaze. Um, to get something out of something you have to look at it for a while, you have to look at it steadily. And then you start seeing things maybe, if you are observant, if you're actually open to what you're looking at. And I think all art starts like that, with uh, either an open ear, an open eye, uh, a steady sense of observation to see what things really are like. So not just affected by passing influences, passing emotions. But if you look at steadily, any any emotion will tend to settle, and then you have a mixture of intellectual observation and emotional attuneness. And I think it's those together that start um, creating something uh, worthwhile, whether it's a work of art or just a uh, an intelligent observation about what you're looking at.
2: And is that ability to observe, is that something that you can develop and hone, or is it something you're born with?
3: I think, yeah, to a certain extent you have to be born with it. Um, You know, there are art forms that lend themselves to slightly shorter span of attention. You know, um, know, rock music, pop music, a three-minute rock song is demands probably less steady focus than a 500-page novel, for example, or a great symphony orchestra, a great symphony. Um, but I think, yeah, I think people who gravitate towards the art, or perhaps towards science too, maybe innately have a certain steadiness in their gaze, Um, But then other things come into play. It's not just about innate ability. I think um, often artists portrayed as sort of, you know, a bolt of lightning strikes the artist and they madly write and two weeks later you have a 200 page novel. I don't think that's quite the way it works. There's a lot of hard work. Um, In my case, for example, I do a lot of research. I have an idea, of course, and then I work on that idea, I sort of think about it, and then I start doing research. I start reading, perhaps traveling, and that gives me more ideas and those ideas give me more avenues of research, and so it goes back and forth between ideas and research. So that involves a lot of work. Um, So yes, you have to have a certain ability, whether it's innate or acquired, you have to have a certain ability. But then it's a lot of hard work. I mean, nothing comes without hard work. I mean, I suppose there is the odd genius who just dashes something off, but those are few and far between. They get maybe all the attention. But otherwise, like everyone else, you just need to work really hard.
2: Can you talk to me about the novel as an art form? What drew you into that? Why write novels?
3: Well, that's interesting because that probably is something that's innate. Uh, Like I think a lot of writers, when I started writing, I wrote shorter things. So my first book, my first published book was a collection of short stories. But even within that collection, they get longer as you go along. And the final short story, in fact, is more of a novella. It's about 70, 80 pages long. So it seems that just naturally for me, the short story was too tight a format. To me, a a short story is like a Swiss watch. It's very, very compact. Every little part counts. I found that maybe oddly too much pressure, whereas a novel you have more time, not that a novel you can do what you want, you still have to work, you have to calibrate every word in a novel, but just the longer format, you can settle into things, naturally suited me, so I I haven't written a short story in years and years, and I've written novels, I think it's just a format that suits me, in part because it's so powerful, a novel, unless you're a speed reader, you know, it takes several, several days, and if people are busy with work and family, maybe several weeks or even months sometimes to read a novel, that means you settle into it, you live with it. And that means you really inhabit it, and I think it makes it extraordinarily powerful. Because um, what's wonderful about the written word, and it's not a competition here with the other art forms, is the written word does so much with so little. Writing is just these little squiggles on the page. Roman characters, Arabic characters, they're just little squiggles on the page. And you have to look at them and create what they say. So, in a sense, when you're reading, you're creating a movie in your mind. And because you are doing it, and you're not the director. The words tell you what to see, in a sense, but you're everything else. You're the actor, the, you do the set design, you do the lighting. Um, you're the one who says cut when it's time to stop reading. So you co-create the story. And, means, and when you involve yourself, that means you value it more, because you are involved. So it, a, a great novel... Uh, is incredibly powerful and it does change people's lives Um, you know people read texts that then change the directions of their lives change how they see life so it is very very powerful
1: well there you go Jan martel but we're not done talking to him ahmed spoke to him for quite a while and had a lot of information and stuff and details about his books and his uh, his thought process so we're going to be listening to the rest of the interview after this very short break so stay tuned for that
3: The
2: world reads from Sharjah,
0: live with Alia, Ahmed, and Aisha.
2: Welcome back to our live coverage of the Sharjah International Book Fair. In the last segment, I played uh, part of my interview with Yann Martel, Spanish-Canadian author known for his award-winning and best-selling novel, Life of Pi, and he said something interesting during the last segment. He said the reader is almost like a co-creator of the text. The way they process the words, they inject their own interpretation, their life experiences, their context where they come from and I asked him some more about that question because a lot of times when people talk about literature and I've seen conversations between readers and authors the readers often ask the authors what did you mean by this how should I interpret that and they almost place a great value on the author's intent so that was the conversation we had the reader as a co-creator of the text and just how much weighing should they place on the author's intention and here is what Ian Martel had to say on that It's pretty cool that you talked about the role that the reader plays in in sort of co-writing the novel, the the way they perceive those sentences. Uh, Is that something you buy into a lot? Because a a lot of times, especially during the Sharjah Book Fair, we've seen people, for instance, go up to authors and ask them, what did you mean by that? Uh, What was was the intention behind that? And they almost put the intent of the author above all else when interpreting the work. Is that something that you uh, think about?
3: No, it's a terrific question. No, the the question of interpretation is a fascinating one, because yes, for sure authors have a particular intent. They have something in mind, but that's what's so wealthy. I mean, if it was a very specific point, then novels would not be interesting. I mean, and some novels, like for example, some didactic or political novels, Uncle Tom's Cabin, for example, yeah. a novel about slavery, its intent was very clearly to show that it was dehumanizing to enslave a person. But once you've got that, it's not necessarily a very interesting Novel, uh, a, a truly great novel lends itself to many, many interpretations, but depending on what you bring to it. And you're right, some of them go beyond the author's intent. But it would be surprising if you... I mean, even something like Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe had one intent. But, you know, you could still read it with a, a variety of meanings, possibly. But if you read it and said, OK, great, I'm going to go buy myself three slaves, you've clearly misunderstood it. So. He, you know, you can read with a degree of liberty, but it'd be surprising if you went directly opposed to the author's intent. I'll give you a very good, funny example, actually. My father is also, is a, is a writer too, he's a poet. And recently he wrote a wonderful text about a man who has a painting. And it's a very, power, he didn't paint it, but he has a painting. And then people in the village come to see this painting, and it becomes quite a thing. And the little, it's a very, it's a two, three paragraphs of poetic prose. And at the end of it, He says, I'm going to now go into the forest to paint myself. Now my father writes in French, French is my mother tongue. And to paint in French is peindre, P-E-I-N-D-R-E, peindre. And in fact, I misread the word. The word was P-E-N-D-R-E, there's no I. And P-E-N-D-R-E in French is to hang yourself. So in fact, my my father wrote, "says I'm going to go into the forest now and hang myself. (laughs) But I read it as I'm going to go into the forest and paint myself. And because it has to do with the painting, I thought, what a an interesting idea to go into the forest, in other words, to hide yourself from the world, and paint yourself, to, in a sense, I thought, recreate yourself. So I misread that final word, but it was all fine because it seemed to suit what the rest of the text said. So here I creatively reread the text in a way that still felt to me very rich, even though, in fact, I misunderstood it. So I think, that, you know, translated books, for example, you necessarily lose something from the original language but something else is gained from the new language. And as I said, you bring something to it as a writer. So I have no problems. I mean, Life of Pi, for example, the book of mine that did the the best. I get all kinds of interesting interpretations. One woman said, you know, your story's about a man, a boy who's in a lifeboat with the tiger. He feeds the tiger, cleans up after the tiger, and the tiger says goodbye without saying, you know, says leaves without saying goodbye at the end of the novel. Is this a metaphor on marriage? Now, I never thought of that. But I could see how it fit. I mean, a story in a lifeboat is a, very, is a very domestic drama. Here's a boy takes place of a sullen tiger. It could be like a sullen husband. This is not an interpretation I had in mind, but it kind of fit. So I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm quite happy for people to interpret books any which way they want. Only, the only objection would be it makes absolutely no sense if they're really reading in bad faith. But otherwise, that's exactly what a novel is, is like. It t- invites you on a trip. But you you can look left or right, you can think, you can daydream whatever you want. You really are co-creating it. So um, that's what makes a novel so wealthy, is the liberty with which you can interpret it.
2: Can you talk to me about uh, your upcoming novel, Son of Nobody? How did this uh, book come about?
3: Yeah, Son of Nobody, which I just sent off to my editors a few days ago, is inspired by the Trojan War, which was mainly written about by Homer, Homer's Iliad, which was this epic war around... Allegedly, around 2,000 years uh, BCE, so about 3,000 years ago, between the Greeks and the Trojans, all these celebrated characters—Achilles, Hector, Paris, Helen, Menelaus, Agamemnon—this, you know, massive war, like the First World War in Europe, this epical war that changed the world. Um, it's a—I uh, read the Iliad recently, a few years ago. I'd never actually read it. I'd read about the Trojan, but I'd never actually read that big old classic, and I. I started reading it thinking it might be a a dull tone that has been around for so long that by now it's kind of, you know, didn't work quite as well as it might have at the time. In fact, not at all. In a good translation, it blew me away. And so my next novel, Son of Nobody, is inspired by it. It's the story of a scholar who discovers a lost Trojan War tradition called the Soad, featuring a a soldier named Soaz, who's just a common foot soldier. In the Iliad, there's only a single commoner who speaks. Otherwise, it's entirely kings and princes and nobles who speak. In the Soad it's a commoner's named Soaz. So it's a perspective of the Trojan War from the view of a commoner of a grunt and um, things happen to him he meets people and uh, this scholar only finds these fragments. So it's a novel that's in fragments on the top half of the page and on the bottom half you have uh, footnotes that flesh out part of what's in the fragments but tell other stories too. So it's a novel in two voices in fragments and in verses. And um inspired by the by the Trojan War. So I'm really excited about it actually it's come together in a, in a really beautiful way I feel so I'm quite excited about it. but it won't be out for a while. it's only going to come out in probably in the spring of 22 in English.
2: Can you talk more about the choices you made the the fri- the fragments, the verses and the footnotes? Um, can you tell us a little bit more about why maybe you pursued that style?
3: It's funny when you have an idea, kind of like a baby. I have four children. You know, your baby is born and you're the father and you know the mother. You expect the child to be a certain way, but children just have their own way of being and of seeing the world and being in the world. It's kind of the same way with an idea. Uh, I had this idea and it just naturally expressed itself as needing to be in these two formats. So the top half are in verse, and loose imitation of the uh, dactylic hexameter, which is how the, the Greek Epic used to be written. But I couldn't just have it like that, because I needed to get out of it to look at it. And said, well, if you have these fragments, the best way to get out of it would be to have some sort of commentary by someone. I said, well, why not be a scholar and then the footnotes?" So, it, 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 what I like about it, it allows me a dialogue. The fragments are, let's say, the past or fiction. The footnotes would be the present, would be non-fiction. So, I have two different modalities, two different voices, past, present, fiction, non-fiction. The fragments are very, like Homer, very action-packed, lots of violence, lots of fights, so that's irrationality. The footnotes are an attempt to understand that, so that's rationality. So it allowed me a nice sort of dialogue between the two, and um, for the reader I think it allows a nice change of gear, sort of like driving a manual car up in a hilly landscape you have to sort of change gear between the fragments and the footnotes. And the footnotes also, as I say, tell their own story. The scholar's relationship is falling apart. It's a very obvious parallel with the war, is a couple falling apart, a divorce. So there's sort of two parallel strands and it, um, they echo each other very nicely. So it just kind of arose, you know, you just sort of said, what do I try this? Oh, this works. And you keep on pursuing that. And then uh, it just worked out that way very nicely. Um, I also have a few illustrations, maps and stuff like that. So it's quite a in terms of the, the the format the form it's quite it's quite uh, innovative i quite like it i'm very happy with it
0: that was such an interesting talk i mean he's amazing i can speak i can listen to him speak all day long i really liked what he said about how you interpret literature because it is what you want it to be i remember reading the diaries of anne frank as a child and um a teenager and um obviously the book is about a jewish girl who is um struggling through the second world war but for me at that age when it's like you have that kind of unstable relationship with your parents as a teenager and for me it was just i was relating to a girl my age sharing her story but Mm -hmm. that is not the essence of the book so it's just very interesting how it's all about how you connect to the book and what you relate to the most and how it touches you
2: yeah i feel the same way Uh, the thing about it is unless it's a pamphlet uh, or a note uh, somewhere like don't smoke or don't park here (laughs) yeah when you talk about a literary work a work of art a novel i liken it to a baby so you the writer you put out a baby into the world you you worked on it you raised it You taught it things but when it's out there it's out there and it's a living breathing thing It interacts with the historical context it interacts with people's uh, perceptions it interacts with the location the time and people perceive it their own way and they Mm co-create it and they process the sentences in their own way and they could read those sentences in any order or as many times as they would and every time they would create their own unique meaning so my view of it is it doesn't matter what the author intends, the work exists on its own, uh, and I've also found it pretty interesting, and it's uh, I almost draw parallels to other uh, pursuits, even sports, uh, and people say this a lot, experts, is athletes don't know why they're good at it, and artists are also very unreliable. <laughs> when they talk about their own artwork. Yeah. A lot of them don't realize why it's great or why it works or why it resonates with people. So I always put the reader's experience at the forefront and it's really interesting hearing all the different perspectives on this but that's my take at least.
1: I also love the fact that he is very down to earth. He was very aware of the fact that just like you said, that every single person would have their own interpretation of something and also the fact that they are kind of co-collaborators to the entire experience because you, just like Ahmed said, you put out that baby but then it's the way the baby is perceived, the way the baby grows up and the way it grows up also is influenced by the things around that baby. So it is it's quite interesting to hear him be very aware of this process and not dismiss it because there's always some sort of reputation with artists or reputation with authors etc of them being maybe a little bit you know their nose up had it this is mine how dare you yeah. criticize or say something bad about it because i understand that i mean you worked really hard on it and you put it out there mm-hmm. so it's kind of hard somebody bashing your baby out yeah. there <laughs> but he's he's like you know it's okay people can say whatever they want this is what they've how they see it because everybody has a different sort of one. Everybody comes from different backgrounds and I appreciate that very much.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's it is pretty interesting as well. He's uh, experimenting with language in, in many many interesting ways. I mean, he talked about his latest work on how he's balancing rationality with the footnotes and the verse, the, the poetry, the emotion of it all. Mm-hmm. So he's still exploring uncharted territories and uh, it's going to be really exciting reading his book. Uh, that's gonna come out uh, he said in 2022 so he just sent it off to his editors but it's a long drawn out process these things take a very long time but uh, we look forward to having him on at a later time and talking some more about it.
1: Maybe on the 41st edition of the Sharjah <laughs> International Book Fair. Yeah. And maybe by then he can also be here physically when things c- calm down across the entire world. We're not done talking. We've got a lot more to discuss. We're going to be ha- talking about the genre of the day coming up next right here at your, at your exclusive coverage of the Sharjah International Book
0: Fair.
3: You're listening to Pulse 95. The world reads from
0: Sharjah. Live with Alia, Ahmed, and Aisha.
1: Since we were talking about different forms of reading and also the variety of ways that reading comes in, and we always had this discussion for the past couple of days, what counts as reading? And I feel like as a genre of the day, we had to bring this in. We had to talk about this form of genre, and that is visual novels, comic books, and mangas. Because a lot of people would think, There are too many pictures in there. That does not count as reading. Mm -hmm. And that is wrong. That is absolutely wrong. Because I feel like whatever it is, if there is a story to tell, that is still reading. Like, it's not being said orally. Like, you're not speaking it out. It's Mm -hmm. not story. It is a form of storytelling.
0: And that should still count as reading because you're using your eyes, aren't you? I hate that I was one of those people. Like, Uh I was. And then I had um, a literature class from... uh, it was called from literature to film, and the professor had us read Persepolis, and I've mm-hmm. never explored that uh, genre. Mm-hmm. And uh, honestly, it was one of the greatest books I ever read. And yeah. then when I watched the movie, it was like I saw the graphic novel come to life, and it was so much fun because you actually, with the graphic novel, you already know how they look like, mm-hmm. um, you you know how everything goes. So when t- when you saw it, and when you see it in action, actions just yeah. different. So, um, yeah, I started getting into that, but I find myself going into um, books that later on turned into graphic novels. Interesting. I, yeah, so I there's this book called Kindred. I read the novel, and then I went and got the graphic novel. So mm-hmm. I, I think I need to explore that uh, genre a little bit more and get original graphic novels. The thing is, like, like you said,
1: I've, we've seen a, a slight shift going from, you know, just like you said, Going from having the book, as in the novel, then going towards um, a graphic novel, into the graphic novel is a continuation of the story. So it just transforms the entire thing, where instead of taking it from a novel to the screen, you take it from a novel to a graphic novel, which is super interesting. And I've seen that happen. And I actually saw one book, and I remember this. I read it a long time ago. That was a movie that was turned into a book and that was also super interesting, interesting to think of. I'm trying to remember the name, but it was an adaptation of The Little Red Riding Hood. It was like a whole reinterpretation of the story. It had like, you know, the whole creepy thing, the horror thing. I did not watch the movie, but I read the book and mm-hmm. it's just like an interesting way where um, authors and collaborators can basically just change the way you consume this sort of media.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of changing ways you consume media, have you heard of Watchmen? Yes. So there's a there's mm-hmm. a t- they made a TV show about it, and they made uh, another movie as well
0: mm-hmm.
2: before that. But it's a, it's a known graphic novel. It came out in the '80s. It's written by Alan Moore. Uh, and what's interesting about this book is it subverts every expectation you have about the superhero genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uh, it it reflects uh, it t- t- takes place during the Cold War in an alternate reality, and the characters. ...are unlike any superhero you've met. So usually superheroes, there's a clean line drawn between good and evil. Uh, They're generally placed in the good side as well, and Mm -hmm. the evil is clearly defined. But in this book, everything is shades of gray, pretty much. The superheroes themselves, they're almost dispensable. They're extremely flawed characters. Mm -hmm. They're neurotic, uh, they're prejudiced, uh, they have so many flaws. And what they do throughout the book isn't necessarily good or bad. It's really hard to assess what they're doing. And I think I like the way that all of those expectations were subverted and uh, it just takes you through a journey and I I find that really, really interesting. Graphic novels as a genre, it's an important one and uh, a lot of authors are doing really interesting things with it, uh, such as this one.
0: And it also gets young people into reading. My little brother would tell me that he hates reading, but I find him reading manga all the time. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, this is reading, you're reading, you're spending Mm -hmm. all your time reading those uh, comics so that means you're a reader so it, it's reading is not about reading a book that has no pictures or no images it's mm-hmm. just whatever text you can consume
1: absolutely and that's what Ahmed kept on saying when we were talking about ebooks versus physical books he said at the end of the day you're still consuming mm-hmm. some form of writing and this shouldn't matter what medium you're using it doesn't make it any less of a book and I totally agree that this is an interesting sort of way to convey stories. I mean, obviously, we've been drawing things as stories all the way back on caves. And now we just <laughs> yeah. changed the entire format into paper and obviously online. And I have spoken about Lore Olympus a while back and how it was sort of the thing that I would read before I go to bed. I'm not saying that graphic novels or comics or mangas are, you know, are simpler or easier on the eye. But then they're just they just felt like they're the sort of thing you can easily consume before going to bed or to ease off, to lay off some steam. And I also used to actually read um, one of my favorite comics as well. I don't know, I like the ending, but it was still a very good one. It's called The Wicked and the Divine. Mm-hmm. I honestly urge everybody to read it because it's an interesting interpretation of um, reincarnation and having powers and deities. And just like that, even taking the whole superpowers thing into the world of music and that's super interesting when you talk about music or something that involves action and you cannot sometimes it's hard to imagine in your brain when you're reading a novel mm-hmm. but a graphic novel kinda helps it a little bit when you see something visualized when the author or the illustrator takes that image or that whole story and puts it down for you it makes it easier for you to also imagine the rest of the things because you're already putting a lot of effort thinking about how everybody sounds Or the ambiance and all that. So why not just have a little bit of help with everything being drawn for you? Mm
2: -hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, when you look at, for instance, uh, memes on the internet, uh, a lot of them have this, like, absurd feel to them. And they're spliced with the text. And that's something that a lot of graphic novelists and comic book artists do as well. Mm -hmm. There's something so unique about the medium. When you draw something, for instance, in this grotesque fashion or you put these Mm -hmm. really weird, absurd situations on a piece of paper, it points to the absurdity of things. Maybe it's even a more powerful way of explaining expressing that Uh, there's a very known american comic book artist as well his name is robert crumb and he made autobiographical comic books Mm. about himself and just really puts you in his mind his imagination his struggles his experiences and did that really well the way he drew as well is extremely unique so it's such a fascinating and deep medium and so many talented artists out there are putting together these comic books. They're drawing them themselves and writing the stories and it's all so fascinating.
1: And just to add to that, when you said that sometimes this is the perfect medium to convey those crazy actions, you know the whole stylistic um, choices they make, whether it's the big words or the facial expressions, sometimes you you cannot think of that when you read something off a novel. But when you have it drawn out for you, it really helps take that message and just hammers it into your brain. And this is why we over here at Pulse95 appreciate graphic novels, we appreciate mangas, and we appreciate all forms of comics. We're going to be taking a short break, and coming up next is our interview with Anuja Nair, who is one of the youngest authors right here at the Sharjah International Book Fair. You're
3: You're listening listening to
0: Pulse95. Pulse95. The world reads from Sharjah live with Alia, Ahmed and Aisha. And we're back with the with an interview with Anuja Nair, the 12-year-old talented author. She has three books out, two poetry books and one fiction book. It's really amazing to see all the young talent here at uh, the International Book Fair. So, listen up.
2: We've got a pretty special guest with us here in the studio. A young author, Anuja Nair, 12 years old, and you already have three books published. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Can you talk to me about how you started writing? How does that start about?
4: Uh, Writing, I started writing from a very young age. I used to get really motivated by big, big writers, and I really wanted to publish a book. So by the age of 11... I collected a few poems, which I've written in a very young age, and then I published them.
2: Can you talk about your writing process?
4: Uh, my writing process is actually very simple. I take out my time. Basically, when I'm at school, when I get like free times, I normally write, and that's how I process everything.
2: And tell us more about the books you have showing at the Sharjah International Book Fair.
4: So last year, 2019, I published a book, which was Shimmer and Shine, my first book. Yes. It's mainly about human philosophies. It's, uh, it's 40 poems in total. And they are specially organized and, you know, kept properly. And I think like kids will mainly enjoy those poems.
2: And uh, now you've got two more books published here at the yes. fair. Can you tell us more about them?
4: Uh, this year, 2020, in SIBF, I'm publishing two more books. I've published them already. Petrona Hugues is a first book. Uh, it's actually a series, so that means that it will be there every year. The next chapter will be in the next year, and the subtitle is "And the Mystery of Madagascar." It's about three girls and three boys being best friends. They call them the, uh, themselves the Storms. A small adventure which is happening in Madagascar when they are involved in a small kidnapping incident. And then they find new, new mysteries in Madagascar. It's very nature-related.
2: And you're targeting readers how old with these uh, with this one?
4: Actually, reading does not have ages, so a- anyone can read the book.
2: Anyone would enjoy the book. Yeah. And then you've got your other book as well, uh, yes. Glitter and Gold.
4: Glitter and Gold. Um, it's 60 poems, and it's mainly concentrated on, what do you say, human attraction but not physically it's mentally and the main thing is that there's a quote actually not all glitters are gold but people ask me why I've named my book Glitter and Gold because glitter is something like a spice to our life and gold is very precious in our daily life life in certain is very very precious for us and that's the main cause we are living And each obstacle that comes in our life is the glitter in our life and that's how it is organized. The cover page is basically shaping a new, uh, you know, a new day, a new future because we are the shapers of our own future.
2: That's beautiful. Can you tell us about your experience of the Sharjah International Book Fair, what it's like having these books out there for people to read?
4: Um, I love reading and people who read and write. So I think Sharjah Book Fair is like the best place, you know, for starting your reading journey. Because it takes you to a new place which you can never imagine in your head. And I think it's very nice because everyone's following all the safety measures in COVID-19. And it's really amazing.
2: And have you met any other young writers as well?
4: I've met a lot of young writers here and they all have inspired me. And it's really good actually. I've met adult authors and all. One of my favorite authors which I've met is Dr. Rashid Ali, His Excellency um he has always been my greatest inspiration in writing because as being a young person in a very young child during my fetus and all we used to have these uh, power cuts during these power cuts i'm specially scared of the dark so that's why i used to cry in my parents arms but after a year or so uh, you know i never experienced these power cuts so i asked my mom i gathered up all the courage because curiosity was building inside me yeah. And I asked her, of course she didn't know what it was. And then I asked my dad. Uh, My dad said that um, there's one person who can never be replaced. And that's His Excellency Dr. Rashid Alim. Because his brain is full of knowledge. And he spreads that out to every small child. So it's really, really inspirational for me.
2: That's pretty cool. And uh, can you tell us what's next for you now? Any more plans? Are you writing anything at the moment?
4: Yes, I'm actually working on my new book for next year. So everyone must be expecting three more books.
2: All right, brilliant. Well, we look forward to getting those books as well. Uh, Thank you, Anuja and for joining us on the program. Thank
4: you. Thank Thank you. I hope
2: you enjoy the book fair. Thank you. Bye.
1: Quite phenomenal. Like her brain, mashallah, like she is
0: just going at it i loved it honestly and you can hear the passion in her voice and the excitement mm-hmm. and the way she explains her like she's young she's twelve, and she's talking about the
1: philosophies of life yeah. that's amazing <laughs> that one took me by surprise and she's like yeah it's the philosophies of life i was like hold on you know that word you <laughs> not even know that word you i was when i was 12 years old i didn't even understand what philosophy is i mean <laughs> even now you tell me anything philosophical I would just blank out completely at that moment. And we blank for the next couple of hours. So honest, I love watching all these kids. You know, they are, you know, light years ahead in in terms of their intellect and also their willpower and strength. Because it's super hard to sit down and note down every single thing that you've been thinking of. Because she said that uh, one of her first books was a compilation of all the poetry she's been writing for quite a while. And since she's 12 years old right now, she has already... Published the books, it might have been such so as been writing maybe since she was eight or seven or nine years old, and that itself again incredibly impressive.
2: Yeah, she's she's pretty smart. I asked her about uh, the poetry book; it had sixty poems in it, but she told me she had written a hundred. So I'm like, how did you pick sixty poems to put in? And she's like, I picked the best ones. I put them in the beginning, and I put put them at the end, and in the middle I just kept it a little, you know everything else Uh, so she said it was a deliberate strategy on her part to try and hook the reader somehow but I like that she has a thing and she's working on it and she's talking about it confidently Mm -hmm. and she's developing it as we speak
1: it is super cool again shout out to all those young minds those young readers and those young writers keep it up honestly keep it up and again it's super interesting and super hard to keep on that momentum and keep Mm -hmm. on pushing through whether it's at that young age or even later on in life because we cannot forget all of the people who are just like me who are revisiting themselves or kind of taking a moment and saying, you know what, maybe it is time for me to go back to what I used to be a long time ago. Whether you're thinking about writing, what's the age of 30, 40, 50 yeah, again, just like Anuja said. Reading has no age, there's no age limit, and we believe also writing has no age limit as well. And with that, we're going to be ending our hour right here at the Sharjah International Book Fair, where we had some super cool discussions. Don't forget that this podcast will be up later on during the day on our Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Tomorrow, we're going to have some more super cool interviews and discussions so make sure you're tuning in to us from 10 a.m all the way till 11 a.m live here from sharjah expo center
0: the world reads from sharjah live with alia ahmed and aisha